Welcome to Taking Back Control, where we uncover the myths and break down the nuances around gender-based violence. This is a space where we talk to advocates and professionals in the field to truly understand what their role is and ways we can help detect, prevent, and move towards the goal of ending gender-based violence. We believe that it is never too late for survivors to take back control of their lives, and the first step is shining a light on this all-too-common subject. I am your host, Christina Jones. Let's get ready to take back control. This podcast will discuss gender-based violence and may be distressing. We invite you to pause if you feel overwhelmed. Professional advocates are ready to help at the National Domestic Violence Hotline, 800-799-SAFE. That's S-A-F-E, and at the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-HOPE, that's H-O-P-E. When we think about intimate partner violence and gender-based violence, we often think about the impact of that violence on the adults who are actually experiencing the violence. Oftentimes we're not really thinking about the children that also see the violence and are impacted because of the things that happen within their families. The Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention published the National Survey of Children's Exposure to Violence. And in that survey, they found that 22.4% of participants witnessed a violent act in the past year. These are children. And approximately 8.2% of children surveyed witnessed family violence in the past year. In this episode, we are going to talk to Ana Martinez-Mullen, the director of BWJP's project that centers around children, domestic violence, and what we do um, as a field in the work of custody and family law. If you have a child, you do not want to miss this episode. All right, so I am here with Anna Martinez Mullen, um, one of our directors at BWJP, and her focus um, is children, domestic violence, with a specific inference, em emphasis on child custody. Um, so one of the fun things about Anna is that she uh, is going through. Um, a motherhood adventure with a grown-up son, and she is also the matriarch of a retired military family. So taking back control, listeners, let's welcome Anna to the podcast. <laughs> Everybody, it's, uh, it's great to be here today, have an opportunity to talk to you all. <laughs> so Anna, can you tell us a little bit about... Um, what you do at BWJP in your professional um, journey? Yes, yeah, so um, that's my dog. <laughs> like scratching at the door. Um, so this is pandemic, right? 101, this is mm -hmm. what happens. Um, so just to kind of give you a little bit of a, a background. So my work here at BWJP, like you mentioned, involves working in anything that's related to children, that intersection of children and domestic violence. So um, we look at, at family law, we look at child custody, child welfare, child support, um, 
anything that really interacts with um, that that section, that intersection of um, children's issues and um, intimate partner violence. So I, I started doing this work uh, a long time ago. Um, and, and I started in our local domestic violence center working mm -hmm. as a victim advocate. Mm -hmm. And I did that for a number of years. I was a, a legal advocate, what we called a court advocate. And that really sparked a, a passion in me. I, I felt like I had gotten to the point where I've done as much as I could do in that um, in that role and, mm -hmm. and really was exposed to the difficulties that a lot of survivors face just trying to navigate the process and the mm. difficulty that they face when they're trying to go through this very complex system and they don't have access to legal assistance yeah. to to attorneys so i like to say that i lost my mind and decided to go to law <laughs> school and then i like to say that i lost my mind again and um decided to go into family law <laughs> so i did that <laughs> um and um and and dealt with all issues in the family law realm that mm -hmm. um, that are related, uh, you know, to that in terms of, of child custody, like I said, child support. Um, but my passion always lie in um, gender-based violence and, and intimate partner violence. So I had an opportunity to go back to the DV center that I was working at before I went to law school mm -hmm. and, um, and work there. Uh, for a number of years after, prior to uh, joining BWJP, I mm -hmm. uh, was working in their uh, civil protection order pro project. So I was representing survivors in injunction courts, which also, as you know, um, cover issues related to, to custody um, that yeah. at least here in, in Florida, where I practice, um, one of the reliefs that you can ask as part of your civil protection order is uh, child support and, and child custody. Mm. Um, so, um, that really just, um, inspired me to, you know, continue the work and, and that's what I'm doing now here at BWJP. So. Awesome. So you keep talking about child custody and domestic violence, um, and how hard it can be for people to navigate the system. What do you think a lot of people misunderstand about the connection between child custody and domestic violence? So I think as a system, um, there is um, a lack of consistency, mm. I would say, in how intimate partner violence is um, explained and defined. Mm -hmm. um, not everybody has a deep understanding of what is a very complex issue. Yeah. And so really what ends up happening is that you have these survivors that are going through a process and are going through the system where people don't speak the same language. Yes. And, and not is, literally English and Spanish. It's just the right. language of court is not English. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, we as attorneys, we go to school to understand this. And, um, and yep. we know that most people that go through the family law process you know are not represented they don't have right. access to an attorney so we're we go to school to learn this yeah um, and we're asking uh survivors and people in general to go through this process that is very complicated um mm -hmm. without um you know that that specialized knowledge and it can be very 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 intimidating 
and traumatizing and traumatizing especially when you're dealing with issues that relate to your children yeah right your your children your safety um that is something you know these these are big big decisions and big issues yeah. and and one thing that survivors are often constantly doing is is measuring risk right mm, not mm-hmm. only for physical safety but mm-hmm what's going to happen if I do this, you know, is this going to anger the abuser more? Like they're, they're going through those calculations. And when you have a system that is not predictable, or it's kind of, um, you know, lock of the draw, if you, if you get a good judge and a good attorney and a good advocate and a good, um, you know, guardian at litem, for example, friend of the court that is that it's in there kind of looking at what is the best interest of the child. If you have people, and when I say good, I'm, I'm referring to people that have a good understanding of the dynamics of domestic violence mm-hmm. and a good understanding of the effects mm-hmm. of DV on the family, on the parenting capabilities of mm-hmm. both the abuser and the survivor. Um, then, the, then your results are are positive in the way yeah. that they are um, tailored to that family, right? They mm-hmm. take safety into consideration. They take accountability into consideration, and so that's that's why um, I think that's sometimes where the disconnect is. You know, mm. they, if. If they don't get somebody that is knowledgeable, then the results can be pretty, pretty devastating and dangerous um, and, and lethal in some in some aspects. So, so what do I do if I'm a survivor and I'm in the process and I feel like any one of those people, but let's just say my advocate isn't um, as knowledgeable as I as, as I feel like they should be? What do I do? Um. Well. That's a part of what we do here um, at BWJP and and in our project. And you know, a lot of the work that we do is is uh, training and technical mm-hmm. assistance. Um, mm-hmm. And and mainly, what is technical assistance? So technical assistance is like we help practitioners, right? We help mm-hmm. we help attorneys, we help mm-hmm. um, even survivors when they have questions about the process, right? So. Mm-hmm. How does the process work? What can I do? Mm-hmm. What kind of information do I need? Mm-hmm. Right. And so as technical assistance providers, we can help people kind of work through those um, questions and, and provide them with resources, maybe connect mm-hmm. them with local resources, local legal aid offices, um, yeah. different different groups that would be able to help them navigate that um, that process. And, and so that's mm-hmm. a huge part of the work that we do both, uh, Tracy and I, um, spend a lot of time, uh, doing, you know, technical assistance. And then, uh, once again, trainings for, for practitioners. Gotcha. And is that, is that training your, um, the safer model? Uh, yeah, uh, amongst other things, like we, um, one of the things that we do is that we, we have the, the, the ability and the, um, What's the word that I'm looking for? The uh, the we're connected through our technical assistance line. We mm-hmm. um, we have the ability of really having kind of like our ear to the ground and mm-hmm. and seeing what are some of the new issues that are coming up, some of the questions that people have, and so we have the ability to tailor 
our, our trainings to people's, you know, particular needs. But a huge, huge portion of our work is, um, you know, training and promoting our safer approach. Gotcha. Um, and so we will have the technical assistance line in the show notes. So if you want to reach out to the team, um, please check the show notes because it will be in the show notes. Yes. And, uh, and I just want to always put out there um, that we are always available, you know, to answer any questions. Um, that is, that is our job, right? And, it, and it's what we, what we enjoy um, doing is being able to uh, provide that assistance for people when they need it. But, Absolutely. Um, and, and going back to your question about what can people do, you know, for example, if they have an advocate that is not, you know, maybe not knowledgeable about this particular issue, um, they can always refer them to us as a resource and, and the mm -hmm. advocates can always contact us. The survivor can always, um, you know, contact us and, and we have tools available that we can provide them and then they mm -hmm. can have a deeper conversation with their advocate about what is the best way to, to go through their case and, and handle their case. Same thing with the attorneys. Absolutely. That's, and that's, that's fantastic. It's nothing like giving somebody um, the resources in order to do the work better in order to serve better. And because sometimes we just don't know what we don't know. Mm -hmm. And I think um, being in the court system, some of the best attorneys and advocates are those who are like, I am teachable and I am ready to learn something different, they can really um, be more effective in our work of protecting survivors. So I love the fact that we have those tools. So make sure you check the show notes. We will have some tools in the show notes. Always uh, www.bwjp.org. Uh, we have some fantastic things. So and I have another question. What is um, the connection between child protection, so child welfare, child custody, and domestic violence? Um, so... Again, all these systems are interconnected, right? Mm -hmm. So when you have, let's say, um, a DV call comes mm -hmm. in, uh, there's, there's an incident of domestic violence, the survivor picks up the phone or a neighbor picks up the phone mm -hmm. and they call the police. Mm -hmm. um, now you have that system, right, yeah. involved. Now you yeah. have the police, there may be a, a criminal case. Um, and so that triggers a lot of other things down the road, right? Mm -hmm. So now this survivor maybe has had an opportunity to meet with a victim advocate and the victim advocate says, um, you know, here are some of the resources. There's this thing called the civil protection order that you may be able to, you know, apply for. Here's some information. Mm -hmm. So now you have another part of the other system, system involved, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? And then... Um, let's say the kids were present when the incident happened and the police officers came and um, that prompted a call to child welfare. Mm -hmm. um, so now you may have a child welfare investigation going on as a result of this DV incident. Yeah. And, and then let's say the person, the survivor decides, you know, it's time for me to um, separate and, and get a divorce from this person. And then they engage now the family law, the, the custody, mm -hmm. you know, family law side of it. Mm -hmm. um, 
And all these systems sometimes have competing expectations mm. from, you know, the, the survivor and they mm-hmm. all address, can address the same thing. So yeah. if you're talking about child custody, for example, well, child welfare has, has a, a role to play there and they may make some decisions based on, on that, that relates mm-hmm. to child custody and the fact that they were exposed to violence. And, and so mm-hmm. they may tell this, um, uh, survivor parent you know we don't want you to let this abuser have contact with this kid right Mm -hmm. if if you do that if you expose the kids to further violence then we can look at this as as a a failure to protect on your on your end and we can intervene and and remove the kids right Mm. and then um then you can have the family law dissolution of marriage action you know your divorce action Mm -hmm in which there is an expectation sometimes that parents are going to cooperate with each other for, Mm -hmm. you know, for the benefit of the children. And there are these um, best interests of the child standards, right? So Mm -hmm. the courts are looking at when we're making decisions on where these kids are going to go, we want to consider what's in their best interest. And they have different standards for the court to determine that. And, and oftentimes one of the standards is like a friendly parent provision, right? Mm-hmm. So are you going to facilitate this child's relationship with the other parent? Which is hard when you're being abused by the other parent. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Correct. So now, again, if we are dealing with systems that are not well informed and don't really understand the dynamics of domestic violence, the dynamics mm-hmm. of coercive control, how mm-hmm. that affects the survivor, how that affects the, the abusive parent, how it affects the kids, mm-hmm. then you can often see practitioners view a, a survivor parent's protective measures, right? Mm. So trying to keep the child from being alone with the abuser or trying to maybe control the, the, the contact, the amount of contact that they have mm-hmm. as alienating or right interfering with the other parent's relationship with the with the child so you have one system saying don't expose this child to this person Mm -hmm. and then you have this other system saying no you have to co-parent right so what do you do if you're the survivor and that's kind of the conundrum that you're in um so um, survivors find themselves in in this conundrum every day and it's Mm. like it's a it's a risk that they have to take a lot of the times, you know, mm-hmm. especially if once again, if you're con- confronted with a system that doesn't really understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so often they find themselves in situations where they are being labeled uncooperative, mm-hmm. um, where they are being um, sometimes found in contempt of court for not mm-hmm. following, you know, court orders. And, um, you know, it's difficult. It's difficult for them because um, in a way you have to educate the the system Mm -hmm. and the survivor is in a very difficult spot to do that um, without resources or having an attorney available that, you know, can can do that. So, yeah, um, I I think one thing that I want to I want to talk about, too, is the op-ed that your program just wrote and that's on our website and it's also in the show notes. Um, I love how you say exactly what you just said here. If you take actions to protect your children from an abusive ex-partner, the judge calls you uncooperative. If you try to (laughs) co-parent with an abusive ex-partner, the judge labels your actions child endangerment. 
you give up and you are traumatized by the system's determination to make you keep your family together and you're deemed a selfless parent who deserves praise for being reasonable. Mm -hmm. Do you, uh, how often do you think survivors just kind of give up and allow the court to steamroll them sometimes in a way just like their abusive partner did? I think it happens often. I, I, mm -hmm. I really do. I mean, I think it gets to a point where they don't feel like they have another option, right? Mm -hmm. Is again, you have this conflicting messages, there's no consistency. And so you have to weigh the lesser of the two evils. Yeah. And 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 I, I and I don't want to be completely negative. <laughs> there's definitely <laughs> movement in the right direction right mm -hmm. um uh and and there have been people that have been working on this way longer than i have and had really set a a pathway to um improving things but mm -hmm. when we are looking at the reality of survivors we cannot close our eyes and and pretend like it's not happening yeah. um one of the issues that i've seen kind of coming up uh, a lot is that as a result of the pandemic, you know, a lot of courts, there, there was a lot of court closures. And so cases that were moving through the process kind of came to, to a halt. So mm -hmm. now there's, there's a, a backlog. Mm -hmm. um, and so we are looking at different ways of resolving cases that may be outside of the court, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's a lot of reasons for that. And some of them are really good. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, so it's, it's good to, to kind of look at solutions outside of, of the judicial system for, for a number of reasons. Um, but one thing that we are seeing, um, is an increase in, um, what they call alternative dispute resolution methods, like mm -hmm. uh, mediation, for example, where you have mm -hmm. a, a neutral third party that is going to facilitate a conversation between both parties and, and try to help them reach an agreement. Mm -hmm. And um, and that is really a, a great process at just yeah. the same way as co-parenting is a really good um, way to, to, you know, to to raise your children mm -hmm. if there is no abuse. No abuse. Right. Right. <laughs> and so right. when you have this dynamics of abuse, it's imperative for the practitioners that are facilitating these conversations to and they have a responsibility to be well informed on this because um, some of the, the cornerstones of mediation, for example, is autonomy and, and you know, uh, somebody being able to, to kind of stand up and, and, and show their position. And mm -hmm. so, um, so I say all this to, to kind of backtrack, but, um, to, to really just, um, talk about the, the, the fact that, this victims again they find themselves in a position in which they have no other choice but just to kind of fold and do um you know what's expected of them right. sometimes and um and they don't see another way out so um you know we've we've heard sometimes of survivors that decide to stay in relationships that are unsafe longer than they needed to Mm -hmm. um, or, or should have, because they were afraid, like, you know, if I yeah. get, if I get a divorce now, my kids are going to be going to this person's house every other weekend. Yeah. Unsupervised without being mean there maybe to 
play some interference or keep my eye mm-hmm. on the kids and make sure that they're safe. So they're constantly making these choices and, and it's, um, it's on us as, you know, practitioners to make sure that we are doing everything that we can. So they don't find themselves in this loose, loose situation. Absolutely. Um, so I, I have, I'm... go ahead. Oh no, sorry. Go, no, finish your thought. No, I was just going to say, and I think that that's where training, um, becomes a, a, a key part of, of this, this process and, mm-hmm. and things like the safer approach are, are good tools to ensure that we are all in a position in which we can assist these survivors navigate the process successfully and making sure that their voice and their needs and their live experiences are at the center of what we're doing and what we're trying to accomplish. Absolutely. I think, I, I think training um, on implicit and explicit biases too, because I mean, a lot of us have biases, but it's up to, I mean, those of us who like to admit, like we have biases, it's up to us to, to recognize them because I'm sure judges, some judges may have biases against survivors of domestic violence within the family court system. Like, why doesn't she leave or he leave? Why? You know, I, and I think that's important to address as well. So my last question is what can the family legal system do to actually improve for survivors and their children? Yeah. One thing I wanted to mention really quick, and then I'll promise I'll answer your question, but you brought a really good point when you were talking about um, implicit and explicit mm-hmm. bias, and you just brought a, a good point about, you know, why doesn't she leave, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think also another bias that we have that sometimes we don't recognize is that both practitioners and judges sometimes have this idea of victims being very subdued and quiet and meek Mm. and kind of go with the flow and do what you're told. And when they are faced with a survivor that may be really assertive or they have found themselves in a spot where they feel safe to really just be like, no, Mm -hmm. like these are the things that I need. These are the things that I'm looking for. And they very strongly are advocating for themselves. Mm -hmm then there's a bias about, are they really being abused? Mm. Um, you know, they mm-hmm. seem pretty assertive to me. Mm-hmm. Is there really course of control going on here? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, so I just wanted to, you know, when you, when you said that, I just wanted to bring that up because it's something that, you know, at least in my practice, I, I, I saw sometimes that there's this, unfortunately, this picture of when an ideal victim would, would look like and behave. Right. And when confronted with people that don't fit that mold, then we let those biases come in and Mm -hmm. it can have some devastating, you know, effects. Right. Right. So your question was, what can we do? (laughs) What can we do? Let's, 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 yeah, leave this on a hopeful note. What can we, what's one thing that the family legal system can do to improve outcomes for survivors? So for me, I I think uh, that, the most important thing that we could do is just to have a consistent message Mm, for survivors mm -hmm. across all systems, right? Mm -hmm. Um, When we're talking about the intersection of all those, um, you know, child welfare, child custody, child support, you know, um, survivors get thrown into these systems and it's not fair for them that everybody Mm -hmm. has a different expectation of them. So, if we take into consideration, right, and if we are 
uh, creating policies and we are really looking at this as a um, way to really center survivors' life experiences mm -hmm. and how violence affects them and their children, then the next logical step would be that all of these separate systems would have a consistent message. Yeah. Um, so really centering the lives of the lived experiences of survivors is number one. Mm -hmm. um, I think, uh, so that would be my number one suggestion. The other is a consistent training, right? Mm -hmm. One of the good things that I love about SAFER is that, you know, when we teach this approach, the SAFER approach, um, we like to train everybody on it, right? Mm -hmm. So we're talking about your advocates, your judges, your um, court personnel, your magistrates, your attorneys, your guardians at litem, right? So everybody is starting from the same place. We all mm -hmm. have um, the same definition of domestic violence, the same definition, of course, of control. Um, and, and it's a systematic approach. So it's going to walk you through like, hey, these are the steps yeah. that we need to take, you know, screening for violence, super duper important. Then you're moving into assessing the nature and context of the abuse, right? Mm -hmm. um, looking at the effects that that abuse has in that particular family. And then at the end, how you respond individually to that family, not a cookie cutter response, but, yeah. you know, you're looking at that progression of, um, of something that is going to give you a, at the end, um, a, a proper remedy or a proper response that it's going to be, that it's not going to be uh, underprotective. So it's going to, mm -hmm. it's, it's going to take um, into consideration safety concerns, but it's also not going to be over restrictive. So you're yeah. really taking into consideration that it is important for these families um, and for these children to have access to the parent that's, that's causing harm when it's safe right okay. when it when it's safe that I think yeah. I think that is that is the definite thing we want to end on about when it is safe it is mm -hmm. like parenting can be done together but it's really hard um mm -hmm. to do it when one parent has a <laughs> a very real fear mm -hmm. yes mm -hmm. and that's the harm. thing is like it's a it's a real fear I mean mm -hmm. we know we we know there's there's research there 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 you know we see it on the news all the time that unfortunately there are a lot of cases that sometimes end in you know murder suicides or the children being killed um mm -hmm. so this is a real fear for survivors and yeah. um and, and so we need to really really keep that in mind um so consistent messaging across the, the systems, consistent training amongst all practitioners. And then I think the last one, and it's something that it's really close and dear to my heart. And, and one of my main focuses is, you know, it's that access to justice piece. Yeah. You know, this, these systems are complicated. Um, and we are asking a lot of people in general and asking a lot of survivors for them to navigate these and, and having access to things like experts and, mm -hmm. you know, just understanding all of this stuff that can be super duper complicated. So mm -hmm. um, the more access we have to attorneys, the more access we have to resources like what we have and, and, and really the work that we do at BWJP, 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's super duper important um, to to ensure that these families are uh, are safe at the end Absolutely. of the day, because that's Absolutely. that's our that's our goal: safety, safety for the survivor and their children, and um, and accountability for the person that's causing harm. Awesome. So this was an amazing conversation. Thank you, Anna. Where can we find more about your project and the work that you all do? So I mentioned a couple of things and, mm-hmm. and I, I heard you say, you know, look at the show notes. It's yep. going to be there. So <laughs> make sure that you go to our website. Um, mm-hmm. We have a page um, about our work that specifically mm-hmm. focuses on um, the safer approach as well as the work that we do in, in family law and custody. Um, TA line, uh, always at the best way to reach us, just yeah. um, send a quick email um, on the TA line and it'll it'll get to us and, and either myself or Tracy will respond to your TA request. Um, and, you know, we, we look forward to continuing to do this work and, um, and getting the word out there. Um, you know, it's, it's, again, it's a cause that ending gender-based violence at the end of the day, it's, it's the reason why we're here and, um, and focusing on, on kids. Um, mm-hmm. It's super duper important because we not only want to focus on what's going on right now, but we want to do our best to make sure that we can make some positive change in the future and and really um, trying to do our work now, hopefully we can break that cycle of violence that sometimes can be, you know, generational. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Anna, for coming on to taking Thanks for having control. me. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Taking Back Control. Remember, centering the stories of marginalized communities is how we strengthen the advocacy work of preventing gender-based violence. And we all have our part to play. Talk to you next time. This podcast series was supported by grant number 90EV0440-0100, awarded by the Department of Health and Human Services. The viewpoints contained in this podcast are solely the responsibility of the interviewees and do not represent the official views or policies of the department and do not in any way constitute an endorsement by the Department of Health and Human Services.